Well, let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, as Nick mentioned, this is the last lesson in Ecclesiastes before we start the last book of wisdom literature. And I think I used the image before that, that Solomon is, has a destination in mind and he is going to a definite place, but he me- it's like a meandering river, okay, so that you get to know the territory really well. I, on the other hand, basically have gone as the crow flies, and so we've been doing a thematic exploration. I believe these are the themes that Solomon is trying to get him across, but I think like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes is written like, life happens. Life doesn't always happen thematically, um, but that's how we look back on it sometimes. So in Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon has told us again and again and again and again and again, and I think again and again, that the world is never enough. It's never enough to satisfy our longing for what the world can't even tell us what we are longing for. Uh, because the meaning of this world is what we're, our restless hearts yearn for, but it cannot be found in this world. The meaning of this world cannot be found under the sun. Um, I haven't actually explored that theological idea, but the, the absence of meaning may be part of the curse of the fall. And by the sweat of our brow, we may earn our food, but we will never find out what the meaning of life is. Everything within this, fallen world, it, within this fallen world is hebel, the word. It's one word. It's usually translated as the same word, whatever translation you're using, meaningless, vanity. Uh, but it has subtle nuances of meaning. It can mean frustrating, futile, fleeting, pointless, and absurd. And Solomon has told us why the world is all hebel. These were his themes, I believe. This is a weary and worn-out world. We are captive on the carousels of life and time. Eternity beckons but eludes us, and death awaits us all. And if you missed any of the unpacking of those themes, as Nick has mentioned, they're on the website, the, the audio anyway. Um, Through everything he has told us about this meaningless life under the sun, Solomon has prepared us and finally led us to this conclusion, the one thing that can give lasting meaning. Remember your creator and fear God. So let me read from Ecclesiastes sections, again, kind of going back and forth. It is back and then forth, and then forth a little more. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting with verse 7, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. 
Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. And moving forward to chapter 11, starting with verse 7, and we'll go from 11.7 to 12.7. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. That's another way of saying life is good. However many years a man may live, let him enjoy them all. But let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. Be happy, young man, while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. So then, banish anxiety anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your youth, for youth of your body, for youth and vigor are fleeting. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim, When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when men rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint, when men are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along, and desire no longer is stirred, then man goes to his eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring or the wheels broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. That section of chapter 12 from I find no pleasure in them to that point I just read, is a a metaphorical poem about the vicissitudes of old age. Um, The metaphors move back and forth. Uh, The almond tree blossoms is about your hair growing white because it turns from green to white. The grasshopper drags himself along is not about grasshoppers. they didn't know what arthritis was back then, but I'm pretty much sure that's what they're talking about, the frailty of the body as you get old. Um, the grinder cease is not really about those who grind flour. 
it's about your teeth. And those looking through the windows grow dim. It's not really about peeping toms. It's about your eyes. Uh, there's actually a thing called presbyopia, which literally means old eyes. So the conclusion of the matter, looking now at chapter 12, verses 13 through 14. Now all has been heard. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. At the end of verse 13, a lot of translations insert the word duty. It's in the NIV in brackets. I'm not sure what it is in the ESV, but if it's not in brackets, it should be, because the word isn't there. It really is the whole of man. And it's not saying fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, and there are other parts of man. This is saying this is what humans are meant to be. This is what humans are meant to do. Well, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So that is the conclusion of the matter. Um, we'll see what Solomon means by looking at these things under the general heading, remember your creator and fear God. First of all, God cannot be taken lightly. We meet God only on God's terms, not on ours. God holds us to account for all of our thoughts, words, and deeds. Living life joyfully is both a gift from God and a practiced art. Wisdom begins and ends with the fear of the Lord. And then finally, the meaning of being human is to know and glorify God. So first, God cannot be taken lightly. We must meet God on God's terms. This declaration goes against the grain of our culture, which emphasizes doing things our own way. I, I got to be me. I did it my way. Even spirituality. A lot of people now, if you ask, well, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. And of course, if their spirituality is mix and match, they take what they want from whatever they see. And they believe by doing that, somehow they'll be in touch with transcendent reality. There's also a large segment of society which may believe in God, but they take him as an accessory, sometimes a coordinated accessory, but an accessory nonetheless, or a hobby. Um, some, some confessing Christians, nominal Christians, would, would fall into that category, unfortunately. But to be human is to be confronted by God's demand. Existing as a human means God has a claim on your life, and he demands that you worship him. Um, it, it's, it's not a suggestion. It's not, a, well, you might want to do this among other things you need to do. This is what we are. We were made to worship God. And... Well, that sounds like an Old Testament harshness there. It really is what freedom is all about. Because if we knew who the God was that demands our worship and what he offers, we would fall down our knees and worship. God is God and we are his creatures. Uh, there was a, there was a, when Saturday Night Live was funny uh, a long time ago, 
uh, Chevy Chase, um, every time he opened his skit, uh, he used to do the weekend news, he used to say, I'm Chevy Chase, and you're not. And God says that, I'm God, and you're not. And we're really not, although a lot of people do believe that they are, or at least their own gods. We do not belong to ourselves, and we cannot create our own reality. We must approach God in humility, reverence, openness, and awe. Now, this is, this is basically Christianity 101, I know. Um, and Solomon is saying something very similar, but of course, it, it doesn't hurt to go over the basics again and again. There's a story, probably apocryphal, uh, about the, the Green Bay Packers. And supposedly they, it's when Vince Lombardi was the coach, he whom the Vince Lombardi uh, Super Bowl trophy is named after. And supposedly they had a really humiliating defeat once. And of course, you know, Coach Lombardi was not too happy about that. And the next practice... After that game, he said, gentlemen, I think we need to go over the basics again. So that's what we're going to do. And he picked up a football and he said, this is a football. And so we must approach God in humility, reverence, openness, and awe. Let us be thankful, the writer of Hebrews says, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Coach Lombardi might not have been a consuming fire. But then again, he might have been. But God definitely is. Uh, It might seem obvious, but uh, some people don't seem to understand this. God cannot be flattered, manipulated, or controlled. Solomon warns us about idle words towards God. Um, I would actually suggest it would be good to... Make sure about your idle words towards human beings. Don't ever make light promises to anybody, especially small children, uh, but anybody. As Old Testament scholar Dwayne Garrett, I've mentioned him before, he teaches over at Southern, puts it, only fools seek to advance themselves before God with great vows and promises. We may impress men, but we cannot impress God. We have nothing to bargain with or offer to God. You come empty-handed. God calls us to account for all our thoughts, words, and deeds. And there is a, a different prayer of confession than one that we usually say, but it does say that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Um, while life is not a continual test, uh, neither is it an endless frolic. That's a frolic. Uh, life is serious business, and what we do matters to God. Though, as Old Testament Derek Kidner points out, Derek Kidner was a well-known uh, commentator on wisdom literature, uh, Britisher, and he pointed out that Solomon's insisting that our ways matter to God and are therefore meaningful through and through robs joy of nothing but its hollowness. Uh, sometimes we think God is just a buzzkill or a cosmic policeman. Uh, that phrase comes from a really good book. Um, author escapes me. Uh, your God is too small. Darn. Who is the author of that book? 
Great book. Um, I would say it's no longer in print, but that no longer applies. Everything that was ever in print is still in print. I'm sure you can find it on the internet. So cosmic policeman is one of those ways we understand God. God is not looking to kill your fun. Um, in, in one sense, though, I cannot completely understand what he is talking about. When John Piper talks about Christian hedonism, he has a point. Uh, God is most pleased with us when we are most pleased in him. Again, I'm not going to lay that out completely. I'm not sure what he completely means. But the joy of the Lord is more than frivolous partying. And as a matter of fact, I always noticed when I was in the party mode back at the beginning of college, when I was in my dissolute and profligate youth, that there was a certain desperation to partying. You know, it's like, man, I got a party hardy or life is going to pass me by. It wasn't really about joy. Life is serious business and what we do matters to God, but that robs joy of nothing but its hollowness, Kidner said. And there was a certain hollowness to all the things I did when, when I should have known better. And there's a certain hollowness to the desperation of what a lot of, not just young people, but older people do that think is going to bring them happiness, but of course it only covers up the emptiness briefly. Um, knowing that, that God actually is present and is concerned with everything we do uh, does have a sobering effect, but it does turn us towards what actually brings true joy. So, as paradoxical as it may seem, awareness of judgment tempers our behavior but need not wreck our happiness. And, of course, Solomon is not the full gospel here, obviously. But uh, those of us who know that salvation is by grace... Um, as long as we are in Christ, we know that judgment has already taken place on the cross. So those, for those who are in Christ, there is no longer any condemnation. But God is still concerned about what we do. Living life joyfully is both a gift from God and a practice art. Now Solomon has gone back and forth again on his meandering route and told us, you know, pleasure and, and intimacy, even sexual intimacy and whatever you might do that you might think is going to be all that much fun, that's meaningless. Achievement, you know, whether, you know, you know build fantastic monuments or win an Olympic gold medal or have a great career and make a lot of money, that's, that's meaningless. Um, Everything you can do in this life that you think will gain you eternity, lasting meaning, somehow lift you up from the plane of mundane existence, lift you up from under the sun, is meaningless. But on the other hand, he says, you can still live life with joy as long as you do not expect from life what it cannot give. And it cannot give all those things that Solomon says it cannot give. It cannot give eternal lasting meaning. Life is ephemeral. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. Uh, there are things that are more important than other things though. Remember, Ecclesiastes is not the whole of scripture. So there are things that are more important and even Solomon points out, be careful what you do 
in your pursuit of happiness because God will call you to account. On the positive side, we can say we can find joy in life only by faithfulness to the wisdom God has built into his creation. I never met any transgender person in college because it wasn't a thing then, but I I did meet lots of gay people. And I'm not saying that uh, self-identify. I don't like to use the word, but... um, And I'm not saying I know that all people who practice homosexual lifestyle are like this, but the ones I met were always uh, unhappy. And I picked up one guy hitchhiking once, a young black man, and he didn't seem very happy. I actually stopped by his house for a cup of coffee and uh, shared as much as the gospel if I could listen. But on on the way, you know, he just kind of sighed and said, gee, I'd really like to get out of the life. I don't know that he wanted to give up his attraction to other men, but there is such a thing as the homosexual life. He was probably tired of clubbing, of short-term relationships and things like that. And the reason that is the case and the reason why uh, people who try and become happy by any of the means by which Solomon is talk about uh, is because, and, and they fail, is because they are trying to find it contrary to the way God has built us and built it into his creation. Uh, one of the most joyful things is family. I'm not saying if... If you're single and you don't have a family, you can't be happy. Um, one of the most joyful things is family. You can find joy in the simplest things with friends. You can find joy in windsurfing. You can find joy in, in uh, uh, having uh, cocktail parties with friends as long as you don't consume too much. There are lots of ways that we may pursue Uh, joy without trying to do it at odds with the way God has made us. Uh, God has not made us for sexual profligacy, promiscuity. He's not made us to deny the reality of our bodies. He has not made us to do a number of things. So on the negative side, to state the obvious... Uh, foolish and profligate behavior never ends well. Um, and there's some alternatives for profligate. Um, uh, when I think of the word profligate, I always think of uh, Oscar Wilde's story, uh, the picture of Dorian Gray. Um, he lived a very profligate life, and he wanted, instead of him having to suffer the consequences of that, if you know the story, that his picture suffer the consequences. It's a, it's a fascinating tale. I admit I haven't read the whole story, but I did just see the original black and white movie recently. Um, so as the saying goes, which did not come from Einstein, though it's attributed to him, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. So I'd modify that by changing insanity to foolishness, or if you want to modernize it, stupidity. Um, stupidity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And I'd also add that this has gone on throughout human history. 
because as the saying goes on the t-shirt, you can't fix stupid. Well, you can, but it takes grace and repentance. People have been doing this throughout history with the same results, yet people keep trying anyway, although it never ends well. Um, And Solomon tells us this, and basically his advice was, well, don't do that. And if you do do it, don't expect different results than the last time you did it. To forget God when we are young invites regrets, bitterness, and emptiness when we are old. The painting on the right is Van Gogh's uh, At Eternity's Gate, sometimes called The Sorrowing Old Man. Started as a, as a sketch, he made it into a lithographic print, and then he did a painting on it. Um, and it really does express, I don't know, the emptiness and sorrow of being old. But then you can add that regret and bitterness if you've lived a foolish and profligate lifestyle. That last section I read before the end talks about the, the emptiness and the sadness of a life lived only for yourself in a foolish way. This is uh, an important task to convince children of, um, and including young people, to take God seriously and to let them know life is short don't do stupid things. It, it, there's more to it than that, but this is, this is not a class in early childhood education. We cannot start too soon with that. Um, life is fleeting. Uh, don't waste it, and don't be foolish. Finally, although not finally, finally, that's kind of a pastoral finally. When a pastor says finally, he's got about four or five more finallys to go. Wisdom begins and ends with a fear of the Lord. So Solomon's exploration of life and wisdom brings him back to where he started. You can see Proverbs 1.7 and Proverbs 9.10. It's also in, in the Psalms that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So Solomon goes back and he doesn't start with that in Ecclesiastes. He starts with his, his own sense of reason and his own desire to learn what he can. And he finds out that life is meaningless and that what he knew deep down all along was actually the truth. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. The poet and Anglican, Anglo-Catholic, T.S. Eliot, in his, in his poem, Little Gidding, which is one of the four quartets, he wrote of this journey of rediscovery. And you may have heard it before. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Um, there's a sense in which you don't know what you have till you, till you lose it. Um, the story of Solomon was that he was considered the most wise man in the world, and yet he let his many wives, which a lot of those were diplomatic wives, um, 
submitting treaties with other countries. He let them set up shrines to their, their home gods. And then he went a little further and he went with them. And then he went a little further and he even participated a bit. I'm sure he thought it was okay. And so because Solomon did this, the kingdom was going to be torn apart. And again, I've stated before that I think Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes in his old age when he realized um, what a fool he had been and he realized again that the fear of the Lord was the only way to true wisdom. So sometimes, let's see, the most enduring wisdom is the simple yet profound things we think we have outgrown, like Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, I know better now who Jesus is, if you want to talk about the hypostatic union between the divine nature and the human nature of, of Christ, I can do that. I can talk about the various meanings of the atonement. I can also tell you about how we know that the Gospels are historically accurate. And so if the Bible is speaking in a historical genre, then we can actually take that in a trustworthy manner, that the Bible is telling us what really happened. But the truth is still the same. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Or in Solomon's case, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The meaning of being human is to know and glorify God. If that, I didn't, wasn't thinking of the Westminster Shorter Catechism when I wrote that down the first time, but I thought, well, that sounds like the Westminster Catechism, which the first one, which is a catechism for children written by Puritans, but that's okay. We're Anglicans, we're magnanimous. Um, it was written for children, and the first question is, what is the chief end? What's the purpose of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that, that's just true. That's what it means to be human. So uh, Dwayne Garrett again says it this way, to fear God and keep his commandments is the deepest expression of what it means to be a human before God. That's who we are. It's not just our duty, it's who we are. We were made to worship. There are, there's part of us and part of every human being, and sometimes it comes to dominance, that cannot deal with the fact that we are creatures. We want to be God, but that's the first acknowledgement of reality that God is God, and you are not, and we are creatures. So finally, I guess I am ending early today. I think, what time have we got? Well, not that early. Um, so Solomon took his wrecking ball of meaningless and has smashed to dust all that we put our vain hopes in, and I won't recount those again. What remains is the truth of our utter dependence on God, which was there all along. If we have learned the lesson of Ecclesiastes, we have been made ready to receive our true meaning. 
that we were made to glorify God and enjoy Him for other, forever. And if I were speaking uh, in a systematic theology class, I would then begin and talk about how, as Peter says, we participate in the divine nature and that through being joined to God with the, through the Holy Spirit, we actually enjoy that fellowship. We don't become God, but we enjoy the fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for all eternity uh, in uh, endless joy and infinite love. Anyway, anybody have any questions? That's the end of Ecclesiastes. And next week I'll unwrap that last thing I said a little bit more at the end of the Song of Solomon when we get to Song of Solomon. We'll spend four Sundays on that, I think. What kind of questions do we have today? Yes, Tom? Um, so in, in, in thinking about the... the looking at meaninglessness. Uh, I think if you were to ask people today whether they're honest or not, a lot of people would say, why well, find meaning in my family? Or I find meaning in my circle of friends or my volunteer work or something like that. Does, does Solomon address the, those possibilities? Because that seems... Does he address it? No, but if, if you asked him, I think this is what he would say. Um, following his line of thinking. Uh, philosophically, there's, there's universal meaning and there's local meaning. So people who talk about meaning in their family, meaning in their job, you know, you can, you, some jobs are very meaningful. Like if, if, you, if you're working for uh, a philanthropic organization or you find it in a volunteer, you find local meaning. This is something that gets you up in the morning. Um, this is something that makes other people's lives better um, and it helps your family. But... Uh, even that can become an idol, if I were speaking in that terms. But local meaning never lasts. So Solomon would say that, I think. None of these things will, you know, as, as harsh as it sounds, yes, it's Hebel. Um, everything we do in this life to try and gain eternity is Hebel. Meaning must come from outside. Meaning, like Jesus' incarnation, our salvation came from beyond us, beyond under the sun and uh, I think I've expressed it here before if I hadn't I'll be very brief um, my conversion experience was in the living room of a Pentecostal street, street preacher who was the friend of a friend of a friend on a Friday night and he just asked me if I wanted to know the Lord I'm making a very long story very short my wife will be proud of me um, and he just turned to me, do you know the Lord? And I said, no. And he said, would you like to? I said, I guess so. Literally, that's exactly what I said. But I had the sense at that time, and that's how I interpreted it almost immediately, that Jesus Christ was saying to me, uh, I am, this is the meaning in life that you have been looking for. Do you want me? Yes or no. And I felt compelled, not, not against my will, but an inner to say yes. So I had what I call a very existential conversion. Nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, uh, within this life can give final or eternal meaning. Not even your family. That, that doesn't mean abandon your family. Um, God will be mad at that. 
Um, and as a matter of fact, if you are a Christian in particular, um, that's, that's what God expects, um, that you will be the best father, mother, grandfather, grandparent, yet you can possibly be. But it's still not the meaning of life. But, you know, I'd, I'd be willing to hear a counterpoint to that if anybody wants to talk about the meaning of meaning. I'm serious about that. So, does anybody else have any questions or comments or <coughs> counter-arguments? Or? Well, my goodness. Are we all just exhausted? Okay. Well, uh, we'll pick up uh, next time. Um, I won't be here with you next week. Um, am I allowed to say that? Okay. <laughs> I won't be here next week. Uh, we'll pick up, oh, and the week after that we have the, uh, we have the church, we have the annual meeting, which uh, Nick's exaggerating a little when he says they're fun but not much. Uh, th- these are much better than the business meetings I remember from long ago and far away. Um, and th- they are lighthearted and, and they are uh, done well. So, uh, so after the annual meeting, we'll pick up on the other side of that with the Song of Solomon. Um, and maybe you remember I said, though it is not an allegory, it is about... Uh, romance, love, and intimacy. Uh, it has implications for the meaning of our relationship with God. So, okay, thank you very much.